Cairo, Seattle. And this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, comedian Guy Branham. Guy was a regular on Chelsea Lately and The Mindy Project. He hosts True TV's talk show, The Game Show, and he has a new book of essays called My Life as a Goddess. Guy also grew up in a family of hunters. When I was in kindergarten or first grade, somebody brought in cookies for their birthday that had like, are they called dragues on them? The little metal ball things that are made of sugar. Yeah, those big silver sprinkles. Yes. And so I went to the teacher and alerted her that there was birdshot on on the cookies and that somebody was going to choke. And it was like so dumb that I assumed some parent had put birdshot on cookies but like I've never heard the birdshot is that what you call the bullet clearly I did not grow up in a family of hunters I, I don't know what he's talking about for his last meal guy wants his mom's peach cobbler for dessert but it's not a cobbler recipe that I'm familiar with so Seattle pastry chef Brittany Bartolabin stops by to school us on all manner of fruit baked with dough so here's the thing cobblers crisps all of those things You can't really define them. What I would call a cobbler growing up in the Pacific Northwest, somebody would call a slump or a grunt. And when I say prune, you say... Juice! Oh, I was thinking you were going to say something else. Mm, Regularity. There, that's what I was thinking that you were thinking that I was thinking. (laughs) I call up the California Prune Board, a phone number I never dreamed I would dial, (laughs) to figure out why prunes have such a bad rap. But first, my interview with Guy Branham. Guy grew up on an almond farm in Yuba City, California, a rural area about three hours north of San Francisco, not far from where I went to college at Chico State. I have a food memory of Yuba City because I still go to Chico every yeah. year because some of my best friends live there. And so it's I fly such into an Sacramento. Town. It yeah. is. It's my favorite place. So I fly into Sacramento, I drive up to Chico, and I usually stop in Yuba City and I go to Casa Lupe on the way and get a burrito. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I have so many great memories of Casa Lupe. My mother loves insisting that it's not as good as it used to be and we shouldn't go there. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I, I Casa Lupe was our in-town Mexican restaurant uh, when I was growing up. No matter if I'm hungry or not, I have to stop. Yes. You can't do that hour and a half drive without stopping for a <laughs> meal. With all due respect to Washington, I mean, getting some real California Mexican food is yes. something you need to do. When non-Californians think of California... I imagine they think of beaches or the Redwood Forest, Hollywood, the Golden Gate Bridge. But the reason that California has amazing produce year-round is because of all the farming communities. Yuba City is, by California standards, is a tiny, negligible farm town. A little town where everybody does construction or agricultural labor. It's not a very educated town. We have lots of crime, you know, lots of trucks and mud and stuff like that. And meth, too. And meth. Yeah. Um, But, you know, it's also like a cool and wonderful place that is full of like rice fields full of ducks and pheasants and sounds like some old song rice fields full (laughs) of ducks and pheasants Uh, and it's also like uh, a very sort of like culturally mixed place because we have a huge Punjabi farmer community and then also a large Latino community as so many places in California do but what's really cool is you have all of these immigrant communities who are approaching agriculture in their own way Everybody has their own sort of like story that they are telling and what they 
pull out of the dirt. Yuba City is also the prune capital of the world. But we'll get to that later. Guy's last meal is a love letter to the place where he grew up. My last meal would be pan-fried pheasant with this brown rice thing that my mom would make. It was brown rice with like slivered almonds and green onions and soy sauce that was like a bad church cookbook sort of, you know, Asian-y rice thing. But just the experience of having pheasant that my dad and I shot with brown rice is this sort of like most fundamental food memory of mine because pheasant that has lived a life out in rice fields tastes like a rice field came to life. And when you get commercial pheasant or whatever, it doesn't taste like that. And then this is so weird and dumb, but I was thinking about what's a vegetable that makes sense with that. That was most Yuba city is Sarson de Sag, which is the Punjabi mustard greens. Basically, in February, the almond trees are in bloom and the orchards are all green because we've had the the rain and there are just mustard plants everywhere. And then there are old, old Punjabi ladies with knives and their skirts pulled up with like a bunch of greens in like a little bag that they have made out of their skirts. Is that kind of like a version of sog paneer, but instead of spinach, you would use these mustard greens? Like exactly. Like cook them down? Exactly. Okay. So it's got, the, it's got the same consistency. It's just got a stronger flavor. It's usually, in my experience, not served with cheese in that way. Uh-huh. It is just served <laughs> with a lot of butter in it. Mm. Uh, and then uh, makidi roti are these corn roti that are kind of like a corn tortilla. Uh, and they are also heavily buttered because it is like mm. wintertime butteriness. So... That was my meal. Beverage, iced tea, sweetened in a very Southern way. And then uh, for dessert, this is the most important. It all it all went from here. Uh, my mom's peach cobbler, the, the recipe for which is in my book. Really? Uh, is it the only yes. recipe in your book? I mean, I have like half of a recipe for how to prepare an opossum. Um, you just stopped halfway through. <laughs> Figure it out. I just explained like how to sort of like remove the skin and stuff. So just to break it down, because there's... yes. Cobblers, crisps, buckles, all these things. Can you explain what this cobbler is? Okay. I have a very strong definition of what cobbler is, and it doesn't line up with a lot of other people's. So my dad's mom made this cobbler. So you start out with like a heavy-duty Pyrex pan or a cast-iron skillet, and you put butter in there, and you melt it down. And then you make a a batter that is equal parts self-rising flour, cream, and sugar. Um, so that it's somewhere right in between a batter and a dough. Okay. You pour that in on like hot browned butter so that it sort so of- So it kind of sizzles when it hits the pan. It sizzles when it hits the pan uh, and you get like a nice crust on it. And then over that, peaches or berries. Yes. And so it like bakes up through and it is very cakey. A lot of people are defining cobblers as like fruit with a thing on top. Yeah. This is not that. I'm not sure what the origin of it is, but it's like a clafooti without eggs. So does that mean that the batter kind of rises up and envelops the fruit? What's beautiful about it? Do you bake it? You bake you bake it, and the thing is, is like it bakes up through to a point 
that frequently you cannot see the fruit uh-huh. by the end of it. And that's the magnificence of it. And then once you go down into it, it's just gooey baked peaches that are wonderful. I was hearing Barry Watt. It's like, once you go down into it, girl. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Do you like all mode? Yes. Oh, oh no. Um, <laughs> whipped cream or nothing? Um, I, I think uh, nothing. Maybe ice cream if we're being truly decadent. But just on its own is is my preference because it is an intense experience. Southern sweet tea, peach cobbler, recipes for possum. How is this guy from Northern California? Majority of the white community are people who came to the Central Valley of California during the Dust Bowl. So like all of my grandparents, including the Jew, came from Arkansas in the 30s to 40s. So, yeah, like I had a a younger cousin who used the word reckon and yonder. Also, I've never read The Grapes of Wrath. My mom is always very mad at me for never having read The Grapes of Wrath. But as a kid, I was very much like, I don't want to learn more about that. It's dumb and boring and full of dust. Yes, it's full of dust. I've never seen Schindler's List, so maybe that's the same thing. <laughs> like, there's never the right time because I didn't watch it when it came out. And so yes. now it's not like, oh, just going to, like, put on some Netflix and hang out with my cat. Oh, my God, I'm going to watch Schindler's List and make <laughs> some popcorn. Like, when's the right time? It's true. Well, now that I brought up Schindler's List, there's nowhere to go but to take a break. <laughs> Nowhere to go after you mention Schindler's List. But after the break, Seattle baking goddess Brittany Bartolabin breaks down the difference between cobblers and crisps and buckles and brown betties. And she shares the trashy dessert that she grew up with. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. Be right back. Be right back. Okay. For his last meal, Guy Branham wants pan-fried wild pheasant that lived its life in a Yuba City rice field. A wild rice dish with soy sauce and slivered almonds that his mom found in a church cookbook, sweet tea, and his mom's peach cobbler. But what distinguishes a cobbler from a crisp, or a buckle, or a slump? And is Guy's mom's unusual cobbler actually a cobbler? I called in a baking expert, Seattle's Brittany Bartolabin. She's been with Tom Douglas Restaurant since 2011. And by the way, Tom was the very first guest that I had on the podcast. Not only did he share his last meal, he shared the meal that will be served at his wake. Tom has already picked a menu. I think it's in his will. He wants to be in charge of what people eat after he dies. So you can go back to the very beginning and listen to that episode at your own risk. It's the first episode. It's the Wild West back then. It's a pilot, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. think of it as a pilot Mm -hmm. for a show that got way better, hopefully. So Brittany is head pastry chef at Seattle's Dahlia Lounge and Dahlia Bakery, and she has been a baker her entire working life. So I was 17 when I decided I wanted to be a baker. I was working at this little uh, bakery in Issaquah, and I was like, you know, a counter girl, and I was washing dishes in the back, and I saw the pastry chef icing a cake. This was like day three at my job. And I was like, she's getting paid to do that. What the heck? That looks so fun. And so that's when I decided right then and there. Um, went to culinary school right out of high school and have been doing it ever since. Haven't looked back. When you left culinary school, did you have particular aspirations for what kind of baker you wanted to be? You know, I, I didn't want to be, you know, buckled into one particular thing. So that's why I'm so happy doing what I do. We're going to get to buckles in a minute. I, we sure are. Okay, just I was wondering if you'd catch my, oh, I my caught pun it. there. Yeah. I caught it. <laughs> 
So I want to talk about the difference between a crisp, a crumble, a buckle, a slump, a brown Betty. But what I first want to figure out is, is what Guy calls a cobbler a cobbler? Because when he explained it to me, I thought, that doesn't sound like a cobbler at all. So here's the thing. Cobblers, crisps, all of those things, you can't really define them. It gets a little hazy. For one thing, Americans have been eating these desserts since we got here. But... They weren't recipes that were ever written down, so they were just passed down from generation to generation. The first recipes you see for these, they're not even published until like the 20s. What it sounds like he is describing, it sounds like sort of a loose biscuit dough with fruit. The only difference in my mind between that and a cobbler is that the biscuit is on the bottom and the fruit is on the top. That's kind of okay. I would say, yes, we'll go ahead and call that a cobbler. To me, a cobbler is fruit on the bottom with some sort of drop biscuit on top, and that's what a lot of people will call a cobbler. You talk to somebody in the South and they're like, no, it's with pie dough. So it's it's hard to define. We're going to go ahead and call that a cobbler. Okay. Yes. Because when I was reading, I thought, oh, it sounds more like a buckle. It does sound a lot like a buckle to me as well. So the buckle is more of a tender yellow cake batter. And that goes on the bottom. The fruit, typically berries, go on top. And then there's usually like a streusel or crumble on top of that. So it's kind a coffee cake only fruitier um and it gets its name from like sometimes it just the topping buckles down on the fruit so well I was asking you on the way to the studio Mm -hmm. what do you call this category of desserts and you have your own name for it I call it casserole dessert because it's all fruit and some sort of freeform carbohydrate thrown in a dish and baked A slump or a grunt is like the early version of a cobbler. That's what the English settlers made. It was cooked on the stove as opposed to the oven. And so it's kind of like chicken and dumplings where the the biscuit sort of stews into the fruit. It was never very sweet. It was typically eaten for breakfast. Yeah, and you just kind of let it burble away until the dough is cooked through and that's your breakfast. It was sort of like a riff on their traditional steamed puddings. And so that was just sort of how that, that dessert evolved in the new world. So that's a slump or a grunt. A slump or a grunt. Okay. Lovely names, aren't yes, they? Yes, yeah. I love them. <laughs> what is a brown Betty? Okay, so a brown Betty typically made with buttered breadcrumbs or cake crumbs. And the difference here is you're layering it with the fruit. So you go fruit, crumbs, fruit, crumbs, fruit, crumbs, and then you bake it. Oh, that yeah. sounds really yeah, good. Yeah, they're delicious. When I make brown Betty, I go for cake. I make like a classic white cake and then crumble it up. Wow, that yeah. sounds very fun. It's yeah. kind of like a mandala, you know, the monks blowing away yes, the creation exactly. they just made. Yes, yeah. yeah. On that topic, there's pan dowdy. You take pie crust and you bake it on top of the fruit, just like a cobbler. And then right before it's done, you take it out of the oven and ruin it. You, it's called dowdying it. You smash that crust into the fruit. And then you put it back in the oven and everything, the juices just mingle and it gets all fantastic. But it's really ugly. So dowdy, pan dowdy. So a crisp, which is the only one of these that I've ever made, because I think it's so easy. They're so easy. That's yeah. just fruit on the bottom, a little lemon and sugar, mm-hmm. and then you make an oat mixture, correct? So typically, it's the difference is that the butter is rubbed into flour and sugar and typically oats. Brittany introduced me to a dessert called poke cake, something that I had never heard of that she ate throughout her entire childhood. In my mind, I can see the little recipe card with my mom's handwriting. It comes from her little accordion box. It, it, she called it lemon-lime refrigerator sheet cake, and it was my favorite thing to make for my birthday every year. I would insist on making it myself. My dad would be like, well, I don't want to see you on Oprah's couch because you had to make your own birthday cake. <laughs> <laughs> but the recipe I grew up eating, it has to be lemon supreme cake mix. What brand is that? I think it's Duncan Hines. Okay. Yeah. 
you bake the cake and then you poke big holes in it with with a wooden spoon. And then you make lime jello. And before you let that jello set up, you slowly pour it over the cake and throw the whole thing in the refrigerator. It sets up. When you slice into it, you see these sort of like zebra patterns of yellow cake and green jello. So then you go for the whipped topping, which is one package of dream whip, one package of lemon pudding, and then milk and you just whip the whole thing up and smear it all over the top my birthday's in july so i always make it and bring it to barbecues and people are like why is this cake so good i hate myself so i do have a very trashy soul i love trashy desserts i love trashy fruit desserts another thing i grew up eating was dump cake we called it rhubarb dump you are from the pacific northwest how yes. do you have these midwestern casserole no i so my mom was a working working mom and her mom was a working mom and i think they pulled from recipes, the convenience recipes, so they could still put a dessert on the table and you know make their kids feel loved, but they took some help from packaged cake mix and jello. And so these desserts are sort of romanticized in my memory. When I eat them now, it's just kind of, it's not that good. Hey, are you listening to us on Apple Podcasts? You know the little purple app on your iPhone? Well, if so, have you left your last meal a review? If not, well, you should. It's a fun little homework assignment and a good deed because the more reviews a podcast gets, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And you can follow along on Instagram, your last meal podcast. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, why are prunes the joke of the dried fruit world? Guy's last meal, he wants Yuba City pheasant, something that he hunted with his dad every year. You don't strike me as a hunter. Tell uh, me about your uh, childhood hunting with your dad for pheasant. I hate it very much. I remember before my like eighth or ninth birthday, it was like my mom was like, Guy, your dad has something really exciting in store for you for your birthday. And what were you hoping it was going to be? I mean, I was like, Is it a G.I. Joe of some sort? Are we going to go see a movie that I want to see? My birthday was always the, the opening weekend of pheasant season. And so we went out pheasant hunting. Um, and it just meant that I had to wake up too early and wander around a rice field. I thought it was dumb and involved sort of like male talk, which is not something I understood. I didn't enjoy it at all. And it is only in retrospect. I, I really miss it now because you get to see a dog do their job. Getting to watch retrievers do the thing that they were built and trained to do is wonderful. People who think that it is cruel or weird, but who also continue to eat meat, I think that that is disrespectful of the fact that this allows animals to lead a life and sort of extract nutrients from the environment in the most natural of ways, and then turns them into meat. And also, it is being in touch with the world that is feeding you. Right, like a natural world. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think if most people had to kill their own animals, they wouldn't eat meat. And I think it does shift your understanding and relationship to animals. I grew up with chickens in the backyard that my mom or grandma would kill and knew that that was what the meal was. I think that it brings a lot of honesty to the situation. And I think you're right. People, it would shift their relationship to meat. So going back, did you ever shoot pheasant or were you just along for the ride and trying not to participate? 
people throughout my childhood just kept giving me guns. And I was like, what's going on? Why are we doing this? Like when I started out, I just had a BB gun that I would shoot. But then eventually my grandpa gave me his shotgun and I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? So yeah, I have shot pheasants. Like we mentioned earlier, Guy's hometown, Yuba City, thrives on agriculture. Besides the rice and the almonds, it also happens to be the prune capital of the world. What an honor. California grows 99% of the country's prunes and 40% of the world's prunes. If you didn't know, prunes are plums, and these are a small, special variety of French plum. They're very sweet, and they were first planted in California in 1852. Yuba City is also home to Sunsweet, the largest dried fruit processing plant in the world. Prunes, poor prunes. I mean... Prunes somehow became the poster child for constipation and old ladies. So I think people tend to think of prunes as a laxative and that they're this food for old people. Kieran Losey is the director of communications for the California Prune Board. We don't really know uh, why prunes have this stigma. It's kind of been around for a long time and remains, and it's uniquely and oddly American. In other countries, prunes are regarded as a delicacy and they're a beloved treat. 20 years ago, they changed their name to the Dried Plum Board. There was this shift in thinking that maybe the word prune was such a turnoff to people that if we defined what it was and called it a dried plum, which is what a prune is, um, that maybe people would not feel so turned off by that. I don't know that it really took off the way that it was intended to. We had done some market research to find out that the connotation for prunes as being kind of a laxative isn't really the turnoff for people after all. There isn't as much baggage connected to that as we had once thought. Kieran said the problem was that people just didn't think of prunes when they felt like eating something healthy. So they decided to own who they were and go back to calling them prunes. Food writer Gabriella Gershenson grew up loving prunes. But until she went off to school, she didn't know that there was a stigma attached to them. You know when you grow up in your family's house, you don't know what you're eating is weird until you go to school and some kid tells you that it is? Cream cheese and jelly. Thanks, Mom. Really? Yeah. I've heard so many people eating that. I thought that was a normal really? food. Yeah. No, I'm ridiculed on the daily. Oh, no. I'm here to tell you you're normal. Thanks, Rich. You're welcome. Gabriella wrote a piece for NPR called... Give prunes a chance. I grew up in a health food household where you really had to search far and wide for something that could satisfy your sweet tooth. And what I suspect is I probably found the prunes. Um, that was in the 80s and it was sweet and we really weren't allowed sweets in the house. But I also legit liked them and I, I still do. When in your life did you realize that they were a little bit of a joke and that you started hiding your love of this food from friends, coworkers, not eating them in public? I think that the stigma was probably pretty early on. I would imagine well under the age of 10 and really all comes back to having a health food mom. And I'm sure any listeners out there who had a parent who really monitored their eating and was putting stuff in their lunches that were good for them, probably experienced something similar to what I did, which is kids not finding your food desirable, making fun of it. And to me, I think prunes just kind of fell into that category of if someone sees me eating this, I am not cool. And then when did you reclaim your prunes when you just decided that you didn't care anymore? I, when, when did I stop caring? I mean, I, I definitely cared into my 20s. 
I think probably at a certain point, you do stop caring about so many things. And I definitely have reached that point. And now I think it's legitimately cool to like things that were very ostensibly counterculture, health food, crunchy grocery items. Yeah. Now they call it wellness. So it's like a little more glamorous. It's goopified. It turns out prunes are a pretty popular snack in many other countries and cultures. And they show up in many savory, stewed European and Middle Eastern dishes. What are some dishes that you liked that feature prunes prominently? You know, as a um, Jewish family, there were the holidays that involved brisket. And a lot of the time that, you know, braised meat is combined with prunes or you can put in apricots. And that's a really common combination for Eastern European Jews, the sweet and the savory. And another very Russian thing, which was a real treat, and I still seek them out whenever I'm at a Russian grocery store, is a prune dipped in chocolate. It's just like if you go to the bulk candy aisle, also in like a Polish grocery store, you might find prunes dipped in chocolate. And to me, they're just so sophisticated and they're such a delicacy and I just love them. Kieran says you can puree them and use them as a natural sweetener like a lot of people are doing with dates these days. They're fudgy and they're flavorful and they're kind of leathery on the outside, but soft inside. And I think they they really deliver a lot in terms of flavor and texture. So that's just an encouragement for anyone out there listening to this who's like, why are we talking about prunes? They, they've got a lot to offer. Do you secretly work for the California Prune Board? I should because I'm giving them a lot of really good PR right now. Yeah. And PR stands for prune. Prune relations. Prune relations. Yeah. <laughs> Sold. I haven't had a prune since I was a kid when my mom basically medicated herself with them, which is why I always knew that prunes were for pooping. But, but. Gabriella said they were fudgy. I like that as a descriptor for a food that isn't chocolate. Do you? Yes, I, I know. I know. I know it sounds kind of gross. Maybe you're thinking of the color. But like when you make the perfect seven or eight minute egg, the yolk is called fudgy. Mm. I like that. Yeah. I want a fudgy prune. All Same right. of my new band. I'm on board. The fudgy prunes. <laughs> and with that, sorry, Guy, that was your last meal. <laughs> Go to GuyBranham.com to see his stand-up tour schedule. And if you would like the recipe for my mom's cobbler, it is in my book, My Life as a Goddess. I do. I do. Thanks to Brittany Bartolabin, who a lot of people know as Brittany B. She is the head pastry chef at Dahlia Bakery and Dahlia Lounge. Stop in and taste her tasty treats. Thanks to Kieran Losey from the California Prune Board and food writer Gabriella Gershenson. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Make sure and go back and check out my interview from August with Duff McKagan, the original bassist from Guns N' Roses. I love this last meal because it's based on his very first job at the Black Angus Steakhouse. And in December, I chat with New York Times food columnist and cookbook author Allison Roman about the perfect slice of New York pizza. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, recorded with Aaron Mason, original theme music by Prom Queen. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal. Guy grew up in an almond farm. On an almond farm. (laughs) Inside an almond farm. Inside an almond farm.